0: And one of the things we talk about is if we don't give effort, if we're not recognized for effort at the University of Oklahoma, then I'm a con man and they're a fraud.
1: guys welcome to the oklahoma breakdown podcast brought to you guys by sb nation's crimson and cream machine i'm your host kamir marabian joined by jack shields and one of my bestest goodest friends from sooner's wire from usa today keegan Renault. how is the life of keegan
2: it's it's been pretty good it's been uh Bagel shop's been a little bit weird. Uh, I think both of you guys know that I work (laughs) at a bagel shop. That's actually how I make my living, which is, so it's been a little weird, but outside of that, I mean, just hanging on, playing a lot of call of duty. That's about it.
1: Call of duty is essential. When we talk about like essential businesses and stuff like that, call of duty. And I've most recently, like I even fired up another NCAA dynasty. Got two going at the same time. It's, it's it's pretty fun, Jack. Jack, what are you doing with your time?
0: Um, well, I just moved in with my girlfriend, so I've been subjected to a lot of Bravo reality shows lately. I don't know if either of you two have ever been subjected to that crap before, but anyway, this is the first time I've ever had to deal with this, and frankly, I don't want to talk about it anymore. It's pretty bad. What, what
1: kind of shows, though? What like what, what Vanderpump
0: Rules, Real Housewives, of Beverly Hills, uh, Summer House. Oh. It's basically a bunch of terrible, terrible, terrible people arguing with each other constantly.
1: Let's and just change the it's channel. Not
0: good. I I'm not the one with the remote, dude.
1: Tell her, her that you tell her that you are the man of the house.
0: It's about compromise, man. We did watch uh, the last dance last night, so there you go.
1: We'll
2: did you admit that you you're, you're sinning living in that household?
0: Did I admit that
2: I'm what? That you are sinning by living in that household without being married.
0: Oh, well, there you go. You caught me.
1: God. Gasp. <laughs>
0: 2020,
1: man. How worse can I one. get?
0: We, we might get some <laughs> one star reviews for that one.
1: All right. Well, let's go on to some other things. We've got quite a bit for you guys today. We're on our Sooner Series finale of the year 2000, talking about the national title, Orange Bowl. Number one OU versus actually number three, Florida State, who people have a massive gripe, mainly Miami, about in that game where the Sooners were in a 10.5 point underdog against Chris Winky, who was 28 years old. Um, they were ranking some defensive players, Lincoln Riley's recruiting, Twitter questions, and just a bunch of other things. So I know you guys have maybe memories or distant memories of the 2000 national title game. Like it was actually played in 2001. Um, just off the top of your head, what do you remember of that game and the aftermath of that game?
0: Well, for one, with the defense, it was probably one of the most sure tackling performances I've ever seen by an Oklahoma defense in any year whatsoever. Like people were just flying all over the field. I, I, you, you do not see any missed tackles in this game against some really athletic offensive talent for Florida State, even though they were without Snoop Menace, which. To this day, they do not stop bitching about. They claim to this day that if they had Snoop Menace, they would have won that national championship game, which is not correct. I have to put them in their place over that one. But Ante Jones had just the game of his life and what was the last game of sort of a tumultuous Oklahoma career for him, but it was very fitting it was in his hometown of Miami. He was a Hurricane Andrew survivor, as was Torrance Marshall, who had his own shining moment in this game. Uh, before the game, actually, telling Chris Winkie that he had stolen his boy's trophy and that they were going to get it back, which that's was such a that's such a good legendary. moment, amazing. That's such amazing. a good
1: video moment they caught on at that coin toss.
0: Of course, and another thing is just that Oklahoma, they clearly wanted it a little bit more. I'm not saying that Florida State wasn't motivated. They obviously were. It was a national championship game, but they had won it the year before. They had been in the game the year before that, and they. Throughout the 90s, they were a they were a powerhouse. So, I mean, it was one of those deals where the older players, guys who had come before them had sort of appreciated the work that it takes to get to that level. Guys who were there at this point for Florida State, some of them, you know, it was kind of like what you're seeing with Alabama and some dynasties that fall off a little bit. They come in there expecting championships just to sort of fall in their lap and don't understand the amount of work that the their predecessors had to put in. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily what was at play here, but it just seemed like Oklahoma who, you know, the year before they went seven and four, the year before that they didn't go to a bowl game, and the year before that they didn't go to a bowl game. So it was a group of players who sort of appreciated it a little bit more. They were very fundamentally sound. And obviously, I'm watching it right now, actually. Josh Norman was just a beast. <laughs> he just broke off a big one. But, uh, you know, it, it was – definitely not a super talented Oklahoma team. I mean, more talented than people think, but you know, it wasn't a batch of the equivalent of five-star recruits at that point. It was definitely a odd deal, but going on a bit of a tangent here, another thing I remember, you know, obviously Miami fans and former players, Jeremy Shockey, one of them, uh, Ada Cougar right there, but you know, it's, they to this day claim that they should have been national championships that year. To which I say, if by that logic, the Washington Huskies should have been national championships ch- champions that year. They should have played Oklahoma because they beat the shit out of Miami earlier in the year and also had one loss on their resume. They deserve to be there more than Miami did. So, if you're a Miami Hurricane fan who happens to be listening to this leading up to the draft, shut the hell up. Go dogs. Was that
1: New from Washington?
0: Yes, that was New Heisel. Yep, that was before he got yeah. kicked off for gambling.
1: Mm. Keegan, you're one of the you're you're the younger one on here. What you, in what? How old are you now? I forget.
2: I, I'm 23. I will turn 24 in October.
1: That's what I thought. So, I mean, man, you were a toddler when this game was being played. Um, but I'm sure you've watched this before, and like, what do you what are your thoughts just about the game in general, and what do you remember growing up with it?
2: So I I do remember watching the game. I remember where I was at. Uh, now, but watching it right now as I'm doing the same thing Jack's doing, the this is really kind of the first time I've actually just watched like watched it and not just mm-hmm. watched it, but looking for things you know cuz just in the position I'm in now and the things that I do now uh it, it, you're just sitting here watching and Oklahoma's offensive line is just not very good i mean they're just yeah, they're bad. in terms of what in terms of what we're, we see nowadays with it they're just it it's not very good but another thing that you notice and it may just be how you know the parity amongst college football recruiting was back in the day is whenever I was down in Atlanta for the Peach Bowl and I walked into LSU's practice, I knew that that day that LSU had a physical strength advantage. They just looked bigger. They looked faster. They looked stronger. In this game, Florida State doesn't just look like they're going to step on the field and out-athlete Oklahoma. And Mm -hmm. Oklahoma stepping on the big stage nowadays, that hasn't been the case. I mean, Georgia with Orlando, but even Georgia's defense outside of Orlando Brown, they Georgia looked like they just were overlords on defense in the in the trenches. So I think that's the biggest thing for me is just it looks like Oklahoma and back obviously in the 2000s was more up to par just from a terms of a sure body type athleticism um, than they are nowadays. And it's crazy to say that with considering where Oklahoma has recruited the last three, four years – but that's just – that's such a big difference in this game. And another thing, too, is that, like Jack mentioned, just the tackling, the technique. It is so good. It is so crisp. And it's so much different than what we see now. It has changed. Patrick Fields, and I think he's probably one of the more sure tacklers in that secondary for Oklahoma right now. But back then, I mean, they were just sticking face max in dudes' chests and just form tackling. And it's a lot different. It's a it was a different different age, and I think I said before we came on yeah. that if you put on this game and look at Oklahoma's offense and you go, that's the air raid, and then you go put up a, a game of 2017 of Oklahoma and you tell me that that's the air raid, I'm gonna go ahead and go write another column, just like I did last Friday. Well, and Ian uh, Boyd thinks it's air raid. Yeah, well. <laughs> Friend of the, I think friend of the network wasn't that the yeah. first time I came on this. <laughs> so like, yeah, there you go.
1: <laughs> but yeah, and do you think because like what you guys mentioned is like the sure tackling and and what you mentioned uh, about players in the trenches? Because I remember Corey Heineke and Corey Klein and Callens, all the Coreys and stuff like that. They were much bigger and seemingly more physical, whereas you know Oklahoma they have more athletic big guys now. <sighs> Do you think the transition of in really this proliferation of the spread and defending the spread, getting smaller, faster guys, or more slender guys, do you think that's really caused a lot of that missed tackles and playing this whole basketball on turf sort of style where you have more missed tackles? I think to some degree. Think? Yeah.
0: I mean, it, it's, A lot of people blame it on, like, the seven-on-seven stuff that's in high schools and stuff like that. I I don't know how much I buy into that. But, I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously that's going to play a role. I mean, when it happens across the board like that, it has to be something. Because it's not just at Oklahoma where that's happening. I mean, there's more missed tackles across college football in general than you saw, like, in 2003, for instance. And I think a lot of that has to do with the type of players that are recruited on defense nowadays. Like, I mean, I'm not sure – I mean, I, I I look back and I see Roy Williams, and I'm not. I mean, obviously he was an incredible football player, a generational talent at Oklahoma. But where would he fit in this defense nowadays? I mean, is Nickel. he fast enough to play? Yeah, I mean, is he fast enough to play just straight up safety for Oklahoma in 2020? I'm not entirely sure, honestly.
1: It's hmm. an interesting thought. What I mean, about you? I Key? think
0: that comes
2: comes back down to high. I think it even you even go back into the high schools. I mean, you don't see the kind of tackling at the high school level that you saw even a decade ago. Um, So I think it's something that's across the board. I I think not being able to have as much physical contact in practice probably has a lot to – is probably the main sole reason for the downfall of what we know as form tackling and football, but – uh ultimately no I, I I don't think this is just an isolated deal I mean like Jack said it's across the board in college football you watch you turn on the playoff and heck even in the playoff you know just four of the top teams every year there's two or two of those teams they usually lose because they're not they can't tackle they can't get they can't main can't keep guys from getting four or five extra yards at the end of plays you know that's It's really the big, I think that's the biggest difference between two teams right now, especially at the top, is tackling, athleticism, size, I mean, all those things. And it seems like, you know, we mentioned back into this is an Oklahoma podcast, you go back into the Oklahoma deal, it seems like they're heading in the right direction, but it's definitely something that's been missed.
1: Yeah, and just in this game, to really reflect on and to show you guys, the listeners, like how smothering this defense was, Chris Winky, Heisman winner, 28-year-old senior, by the way, uh, nearly bald, 25 of 51, 274 yards, has two interceptions and a fumble. He didn't throw a touchdown pass for the first time that season. He had thousands, uh, over 4,000 passing yards. Bob Bowden just says, we simply couldn't get nothing going offensively. They did a great job of confusing us defensively, which makes me really sad for the end of Mike Stoops' tenure. And then, from what Jack said, yeah, uh, Snoop Menace, who, like you look you look at that roster from Florida State. So many guys are going to the NFL, and even like their number two wide receiver in Anquan Bolden is like a, an extensive, an extensive uh, t- veteran in the NFL playing for several teams. And you know, he it's funny because Snoop Menace, it's not like he got hurt. he was ruled academically ineligible. So why I don't know why Florida State fans cuz Jack you you know you were down there I don't know why they were yeah. complaining about it they were, well, he I was mean, academically it's, it's, ineligible
0: yeah, they're not complaining I mean they're complaining it basically their point is that since he, he was out played. that's the only reason they lost the game that's the point that they try to make which it's not he I mean he was impactful but it's not as impactful as Oklahoma losing to Marco Murray because he was yeah. Oklahoma's big play threat. I mean, Florida State still had so many good receivers out there. You know, they and had Antoine like you said. Yeah, and I mean, they were you know they were great offensively across the board. So it's it doesn't hold the same water as us talking about Demarco Murray.
1: Yeah, and coached offensively by a familiar face, a young familiar face, and Mark Richt, who coached his last game at Florida State before taking over at UGA, which I thought was an interesting thing that I didn't realize when I was a kid. And I didn't even catch it my first couple times re watching the game through. And really, this game had several turnovers both ways. And I remember seeing, I think it's Josh Heipel through an interception at midfield, and the very next play, or there's a fumble in the very next play, Chris Winky throws an interception right over the middle back to Torrance Marshall or something like that. And we, we kind of talked about this. Did you guys feel watching it that Florida State, maybe with their pedigree, was actually immensely, or not maybe immensely, but just more talented overall? but they just could not get anything going offensively? Or do you guys think that Oklahoma physically, and like Keegan said, they were just matured physically and tackled well, like you said, Jack, that they were just up to par, and their defense smothered Florida State so much that you know their offense, they just needed a few drives to get it in and win. What do you guys think? Well,
0: yeah, Florida State, it hurt them, the fact that they weren't able to have really any big plays. Like, they didn't gain any big chunks of yardage at any point in this game. They never really had any momentum plays offensively to get them going. I mean, they had some chunks here and there, but they weren't able to uh, ever do anything really to uh, make Oklahoma's defense pay. I mean, they – and a lot of it, like we said, I mean, it has to do with the fact that Oklahoma was tackling so well. Florida State wasn't breaking any tackles and going an extra 20 yards at any point. I think that had a large role in it. Mean, I mean, Florida State was more talented than Oklahoma was physically. But Oklahoma just—they were so ready for this game. They were—they be- were so well coached. I mean, it's crazy to say this. They were very, very, very well coached defensively at that point under Mike Stoops. It was a different era, of course, but
1: mm-hmm.
0: during that era, obviously, it was suited to Mike Stoops's style. Before he became now he's a grabbing of Saban's coffee. Yeah, of course. Yeah, now he's grabbing Saban's coffee. But uh, you know, it's—I think that had a lot to do with it, honestly. But I mean, yeah, not being able to really get anything going had a lot to do with it.
2: You know, i I think the biggest thing for for me is is you hear, and I've equated a lot of this conversation back to the present day, and you hear Alex Crench mention the word turnovers equal victory. Well, Oklahoma was able to turn the football over quite a bit in this game, and. If that's something that you feel is caused by what Oklahoma was able to do, I, I think the interception to God, you guys are going to kill me that I'm forgetting his last name. And I should know who this is. Linebacker, number 10. Points oh Marshall. There we go. Yeah. And, you know, the interception to him was a bad throw, bad read. But ultimately, mm-hmm. Oklahoma was. It, Chris Winkie was never comfortable in this game. Um, his feet, he you could tell that he felt he felt pressure before pressure was there and if that was something that Mike Stoops did from an X and O standpoint from a strategic standpoint um you know I don't that's not a talent deal that's that's Oklahoma executing a game plan that's Oklahoma executing a game plan with top top talent I mean they did have they did have a bunch of really good players on this team so um you know I think that's the biggest thing is I think Oklahoma was up to the task defensively and I think they were up to the task uh, in terms of their game plan, and obviously they executed it to a high level.
1: Yeah, I, I would agree. I would agree with that. I mean, you have you have difference makers like Torrance Marshall and Rocky Kalmus, you know, in number ten and twenty, and then you have Ante Jones, Derek Strait, Wolfolk's not playing cornerback yet, and of course you have Brandon Everage, J.T. Thatcher, and then of course you know you just you look at Roy Williams and just how amazing he was in this game. He had so many plays that don't aren't, aren't on the sheet that made chris winky shy away from him but you know the game oklahoma people forget they missed their first field goal uh you know tim duncan was not a reliable kicker that year he ended up coming up clutch and at the end in the next two kicks and then uh, the game before that against kansas state in that big Twelve title game but they couldn't get into the end zone and neither team really did until the very end when Quinn Griffin, Q bursts up the middle, uh, I think a guard pulled, and he spins out of a tackle, and they go up 13-0 late. And really, I mean, Florida State, they try to come back late, but it's too late, too little too late, and the game's over. Sooners win, 13-2 over, a snap over the head. You know, what's this feeling and reaction, and really how did it mostly impact not just football, for the Sooners and Bob Stoops, but how did that impact Norman, Oklahoma?
0: Well, for one, Campus Corner came back after that. I mean, Campus Corner was, you know, in a bit of a lull in the 90s because, you know, they weren't getting as much business from football in the fall. I mean, there weren't as many bars. There weren't as many things of that nature. I mean, you've got to remember that those businesses, they rely on football. And when Oklahoma Stadium was, you know – 70% Seventy percent full, and people weren't showing up super early to tailgate. That really hurt the uh, the business down there. I mean, obviously losing games hurt too because people weren't were a lot less likely to hang out and celebrate afterwards. So, you know that you know Campus Corner as we know it it's thanks to OU football. It really is. And another thing, um, sorry, I lost my train of thought here. But uh, oh, and another on the football side of things I mean obviously you had the approval of the upper deck on the east side that came after Oklahoma won its national championship you had more donations is because of this also recruiting doors began to open Oklahoma became a program that was recruiting at an elite level like it did back when Switzer was you know uh, at the helm I mean obviously there was some talent on this 2000 team but these were not the equivalence of blue chip recruits in that day obviously you didn't really have the same ranking structure that you have at this point but it definitely opened doors in recruiting and it started you know uh, snowballing into top 10 classes which you've had a few exceptions along the way obviously when things got stale under Bob Stoops at some point it started being top 15 and top 20 classes instead but For the large part, for the next decade, you were seeing Oklahoma consistently being a top ten recruiter, and that was because of winning that game.
1: You know, what about you, Keegan?
0: uh,
2: It's so different for me because the first really kind of this is Oklahoma football moment for me was the 2008 OU Texas Tech game, and. The impact you saw that have on a fan base and a community, just in terms of just bringing people together in terms of celebration. Now, obviously, Oklahoma lost that champion, national championship game uh, to Florida, but you know, I, I obviously family. Uh, grandpa played baseball at you. Uncle played baseball at you, and then you know, two or three graduates. So uh, you hear all about it. Uh, you hear, you know, I think winning a I think winning a national championship to them, I, I think it's given them so much more importance um, of Oklahoma football. Um, granted, these are the people that grew—you know—they grew accustomed to the Switzer era. But you know, if Oklahoma doesn't win a national team in two thousand, like, is it, does Oklahoma become Nebraska? Does it—is that hmm. the—you know—if they lose this game, does the air raid? Does it stick around? Um, you know, they won this game thirteen to two. If they lose this game, you know, thirteen to ten. Does Bob Stoops go back to – is Bob Stoops' Oklahoma? Is this more of a Alabama, Nick Saban kind of style um, – a Nick Saban kind of style offense? So I think the repercussions of it from a philosophical standpoint of the program and the expectation that was set, I think that just, just changed everything. And I think Jack mentioned too. I think it's changed the economy um, of Norman. I think it's changed the uh, – obviously football brings in students too because it's a
0: national brand. Of course, so, Yeah.
2: And I, so I think it's, I think it's brought, I think it's done so many things for, you know, the state And I think it's done so many things for Norman. Um, and then from the football side of it, just the philosophical effects of it. I think, you know, you look at the flip side of what could what probably the adjustments that would have been made after uh, probably would have changed the direction of where we're at today.
1: Yeah. I think, I think it's fair to say. And, you know when you guys are talking about campus corner and how they depend on all the money that comes from these games on saturdays in norman i think about you know the possible idea that there is no football this fall or spring and what happens to campus corner and those businesses businesses then it's kind of kind of scary but moving on to since 2000, there have been several great offensive and defensive players. And what we're going to do is we're going to rank from five to one our top defensive linemen, linebackers, and defensive backs. So I'll go first. And since we have three guys on, you, one, one another can go first on each round. So for my defensive linemen, I'm going to go number five, Frank Alexander. Number four. I've got Dan Cody. Number three, I've got Dusty Dvorak. Number two is GK, Joe McCoy. Number one, of course, is always going to be Tommy Harris for defensive lineman. Jack, what do you have?
0: This is going to sound like a cop-out, but for one and two, I have McCoy and Harris. <laughs> it's like more yeah, than no, that's fair. There. I mean, it, it, it's, Tommy Harris was so dominant. He was drawing double teams. Both of them had a similar effect. They both drew double teams, opened things up for other people, and then sometimes they could work their way through those double teams just because they were so good. I mean, Tommy Harris was – he was one of – I was talking about, you know, doors opening up recruiting-wise. Tommy Harris was evidence of that. He was in the 2001 class, and he is someone who Oklahoma in previous years absolutely was not going to get. But Oklahoma was able to beat Texas for him. And uh, he was, you know – He was a top 10, top 15 overall recruit, number one DT in the class. Just an absolute stud. And then, you know, Gerald McCoy, I believe he was the 05 class, maybe 06 class. But anyway, he was the number one defensive tackle in his class as well. And both of them had a similar impact. Number three, I went Dan Cody. He was probably as good of a pass rushing defensive end, just straight up defensive end, hand in the dirt guy that Oklahoma's had since 2000. Then four, I went to Voracek. Five, it, it was tough. Frank Alexander was in the conversation. Jonathan Jackson was in the conversation. Uh, I ended up going Jeremy Beal. But uh, yeah. another, another guy – I mean, people forget this. Before he got hurt, Demarcus Granger was a monster. He was also the number one DT recruit in the country mm-hmm. when he came out of high school. Oklahoma, they – Jackie Ship got three number one defensive tackle recruits in the country during his time at OU. When he Obviously,
1: was actually he recruiting?
0: When he was actually recruiting, yes, and not just taking random trips. But, like, um, yeah, I, he was someone who, when healthy, was absolutely in that conversation. He was really good.
1: What are you, Keegan?
2: Uh, number one, number two is pretty easy. Uh, like you mentioned, Tommy Harris and Gerald McCoy. Uh, and I think it does. It does get easier with three and four because it's Dan Cody and Dusty Devorcek. See, this is where it gets interesting, and this is where opinion kind of plays into this because I think we saw uh, scratching on the surface of what he would have become at Oklahoma in four years or in five years and it took him five years to get there because of his defensive coordinator and the system I truly think you know you look at guys who are going to be drafted and where they've been drafted at Neville Gallimore is going to be drafted this probably the highest drafted player since Geno Grissom went in the third round at 97th pick And then before that, I mean, you're going way back. You're looking at Dusty Dvorak was the third third round 73rd pick. Neville Gallimore is going in the second round. So Hmm. I I think that this is a guy that when you look at Neville, uh, I I truly think that if he had the right coaching and he was in the right system all along, um, he's probably not at Oklahoma for five years. He's probably at Oklahoma for four at the most, more than likely three. With the kind of athlete he is so um i think it's going to be those four that i mentioned tommy harris gerald mccoy and then tommy one gerald mccoy two and then whatever order dan cody and dusty dvorak and then neville gallimore at five
1: that's an interesting take you know i I thought about it's a very valid take i
0: mean I, i think as far as upside and how good he could have been and how good he was in the end i think that's definitely a compelling argument
1: I mean, you, you look at the a lot of these defensive starting, players. Sorry
0: to cut you off.
2: Damn guy was getting triple teamed by LSU. Yeah. LSU yeah. was so worried about him. He was getting triple teamed.
1: No, you, you're right. You you look at a lot of these defensive players. I mean, I imagine if uh, I mean, we're going to go to the linebackers next, but I imagine like if Kenneth Murray had been coached by Brian Odom all three years of his college career, he might end up higher on my list. But let's go to the linebackers jack what's your list you know i am
0: a rocky Kalmus loyalist because i had this jersey during the 2000 season and after the season was over i got a custom made orange ball patch put on that jersey so Hmm. rocky Kalmus was my favorite ou football player growing up at that age so i'm going and, and he was incredible as well i mean he was the he won the butt kiss in 2001 and was a finalist in 2000 i mean he was incredible So I went with him, number one. Number two, as far as – the reason that I have him at number two and not number three is because he had more of a sustained run, and I'm going with Teddy Lehman. He was incredible. He was a guy who ran a 4-4. He won the butt kiss in 03. He was a fairly high draft pick, but it didn't really work out for him because of injuries and whatever. Three, the guy who had the best season at linebacker in my lifetime, Curtis Lofton, who was – if he was on any kind of preseason butt kiss watch list in two thousand seven, he wins the butt kiss. But didn't work out, obviously. And then he, you know, goes pro and then has a decade-long career in the NFL and sorry, I'm burping, did quite well for himself. Number four, I'm going Kenneth Murray, just because, you know, it's sort of like what Keegan talked about with Gallimore in this last category, he finally had a defensive coordinator, and he was able to put those physical tools to a complete use. And he had one of the more impressive seasons I've seen by a linebacker ever. Number 10 was tough. You had a few people who were in the running here. I I went with Eric Stryker at number five, and the other people in the running were Torrence Marshall and Obo. But, uh, yeah, I went Eric Stryker just because of the impact he had on opposing offenses.
1: Keegan
0: number one,
2: I, I I think is pretty, pretty easy. And I think Jack hit it, hit it head right on the nail there with Teddy Lehman. I think he probably of the linebackers in the Bob Stoops, Mike Stoops era part one. I think he's probably one of the only ones that would have played at Oklahoma uh, in the current system, or at least had success in it. Um, I think Torrance Marshall's probably a little too stiff. Rocky Kalmas, more than likely, would have worked out. Um, but I definitely think Teddy Layman probably fits the best um, among amongst that group. So, and then two is Curtis Lofton. I don't think Jack is missing anything there. Uh, and then three, see, this is where we probably get some recency bias. Because I think Kenneth Murray probably slides up all the way that high. I think if we would have seen him in year four, more than likely, he slides up all the way high to number three. And then, believe it or not, I am going to stick with this. And I, I think it's probably because it's one of the best, probably the best linebacker tandem since 2000. And I'm going to go four and five, just Rocky Kalmus and Torrance Marshall. Hmm. I, I think... I, th- I think that you can't separate those two. I think that they brought the same impact to each other. Um, and, you know, it's weird. I think Eric Stryker and Oboe are sort of in their own category because you can't really hit them up against, you know, the defensive tackles and defensive – true defensive ends of Oklahoma and then they're not linebackers. But I think those two guys in terms of their overall impact and their ability to just take over games is as good as it gets – uh, since the century turned in two thousand.
1: Yeah, and I mean my list is pretty consistent with your guys' I've at one I have Kalmus, two is Lehman, three is Lofton, four Kenneth Murray, and then five, I have actually I have Torrance Marshall. So let's go on to defensive backs. And this one was a little bit difficult once you got past the three guys that all played together in two thousand and one and two thousand and two um yeah i mean like keegan what are your top five defensive backs since 2000
2: oh man gotta get get me right off the bat here um you know this is one of those categories that i don't think that we can sit here and kind of just go one through five i think that this Mm -hmm. is a i think this is a group of you know a collect group that is sort of in the same tier so uh number one um it was actually, is people may disagree with me, but I got to see him a little bit more than the first one, and I'm going to go with Derek Strait at number one in terms of in college. I think, you, you know, you hear things about Derek Strait and him just being a shutdown corner and being one of the last kind of guys that Oklahoma's had that's just a true uh, shutdown corner. And it's been a long, uh, you know, you really think about it. He was, his last season playing was in 2003. So, you know, you're talking about 18 years. And uh, really up until, you know, I haven't had a confidence in a corner since Aaron Colvin. Um, You know, every down, every down of every game. So uh, I'm going to go Derek straight number one. I think number two is pretty easy after that. Andre Wolfolk. And then it gets a little hairy. Because there's a couple name, and I think one that I, I is not on my list that does need to be mentioned is Reggie Smith, because um, his years at Oklahoma I mm-hmm. thought were very underrated. Uh, I don't think it's talked about enough. And the but then you kind of start going down the list. Uh, Aaron Colvin um, is in this conversation. I think uh, God, it's so tough, and I want to do it. Antonio Perkins also in this conversation. And then I, I think I'm going to do it. I, I I truly think that, man, do I have to oh, – I got to do – I think Parnell Molly's up there, guys. I think in 2019 what he was able to do after that Kansas State game in terms of just I, – I can't I, – I don't even remember Aaron Colvin being the guy that lined up across from the, the top wide receiver in every game and those top wide receivers, Jalen Rager is going to go in the first two rounds. Denzel Mims is going to go in the first two rounds, and Jamar Chase is going to be a first rounder. And right, J- and Parnell Motley exceeded expectations in every role in those games. And you know, you even look at his impact in the Oklahoma State game. They I mean they just they didn't even throw his way with Drew Brown and the way that he obviously had the fumble and everything. So it's Reggie Smith or Parnell Motley was at number five, and I went with Parnell Motley.
1: That's fair. Um, I'll go. I've got Roy Williams, Andre Woolfolk, Derek Strait, and then four and five get a little bit muddy after that. I put Tony Jefferson. He wasn't even drafted. Oh, DB, I I was
2: going straight corners. That's why I got all messed up here. I was wondering
1: why
0: you
2: didn't
1: talk about Roy Williams. I was just going to let it slide, you know? So
2: we're going to yeah, – we'll revisit. We don't have to revisit. We can circle back to you. Okay. Yeah, but
1: Tony Jefferson didn't even go drafted. And, I mean, apparently Mike Stoops didn't have very many nice things to say about him. And Tony Jefferson, if you guys remember, had some words to say on Twitter after all that stuff went down. But – he was a good player for the Sooners and he's had a pretty good career despite injuries in the NFL. And then I have, I had two more in for one final spot at five and I was down between Aaron Colvin and Reggie Smith. Um, So I went Colvin at five and honorable mention was Reggie Smith. So that's my top five, Jack, what do you have? And then we'll circle around to Keegan.
0: Well, I went Roy Williams, the ultimate, you know, bad motherfucker in the OU defense, the, probably the best, uh, OU defensive player of my lifetime. He would probably, he's right in the conversation with, you know, Leroy Selman as the best defensive player in
2: hmm.
0: OU wow. football history. He was, he was amazing. But, like, and then two, I went Derek straight. I went straight uh, because he was incredible for all four seasons of his career at Oklahoma, and then that culminated in a Thorpe Award victory in 2003. Number three, I went Andre Wolfolk. In 2002, Wolfolk was so good that quarterbacks had to target uh, Derek Strait essentially because they were so afraid of Andre Wolfolk. I mean, talk about pick your poison, but they were picking to throw to Strait instead of throwing to, instead of choosing to pick to uh, throw to Andre Wolfolk at that point. That's how good Wolfolk was. He was so long and athletic. He was about 6'2. There was a reason he went, you know, late in the first round. I mean, he was. Obviously, it didn't work out. A lot of OU's best defensive players back then didn't really work out in the NFL, unfortunately. Then number four, I went with the Crimson Missile, Brandon Everidge, at number
1: four. Mm.
0: Back when you could target at will, (laughs) Brandon
1: Everidge
0: (laughs) was a wreaker of havoc. He was outstanding, and he had a great nose for the ball, too. I put him at number four. Number five, you have a lot of people who could be in this conversation. Those first four are all early 2000s, guys. Five is when you get into the more recent years. Some of the people in contention, Aaron Colvin, really good. Reggie Smith. If Reggie Smith, if they, if his coordinators would have settled on a position for him, whether it be corner or safety, he would have been an All-American probably. Uh, then you have the corners from the 2018, Dom Franks and Brian Jackson. People don't talking enough about Brian Jackson. He was really, really good. And he's a guy who I was sort of surprised didn't, you know, carve out a role in the NFL just because he was so physical and so fast. I thought maybe he could have a future there. Um, number five, I ended up going with Quentin Carter, someone who yeah, earned Carter. some All-American honors and uh, All-Big 12 honors in 2010. He was, one of the best players on that 2010 defense. He was – OU hasn't had a safety that good probably since then, honestly.
1: And he played with the Broncos for a minute, didn't he? he?
0: He did, yeah. Actually, I take that back. Tony Jefferson, I mean, he was, you know, in that level. I mean, he was someone who, if he played on better defenses, probably would have gotten a little more respect here. But Glenn Carter, I mean, he was really, really clutch in that, on that 2010 team. Made a lot of big plays.
1: All right, Keegan, you can redeem yourself.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I mean, it's pretty easy. The top three is Roy Williams, uh, Roy Williams, Andre Wolfolk, and Derek Strait. Uh, And then I I think I'm going to include Aaron Colvin in this conversation. Uh, I'm not, uh, I mean, we're including, all including Aaron Colvin in this conversation, and I have a, a close friend of mine that doesn't want to include him in the 2010s. Decade team at Oklahoma. Uh, you can go listen to the podcast on the Prairie if you want to hear that. But uh, you know, I, I but you start kind of going down number five. I think that, like you guys have said, there's a there's a handful of guys in here that kind of belong. But after Colvin, I'm going to go with Tony Jefferson. I, I think you, you talk about a guy that probably plays in any, maybe any era of OU football. I mean, just in terms of his, he can play center field safety. He can play in the box and at, even at his size, uh, the things he brings to the table. Um, and obviously he had a very successful NFL career that looks to be winding down. So, um, those will be my top five.
1: Yeah, certainly redeemed. I heard your friend really likes Zach Sanchez, big, big believer over in that Aaron, guy
2: over Aaron Colvin. That's see, that's the, that's the one for me. I, I I could understand maybe Aaron Colvin, if it's like Parnell Motley, Aaron Colvin being a conversation, but for like maybe number one, but Aaron Colvin was
0: that. Yeah, Sanchez Sanchez was was way too boomer bust, I think, for this list. I mean, he was not a lockdown corner. He was a guy who made a lot of big plays, jumping routes, but definitely not a lockdown guy like Aaron Colvin was and how Motley was towards the end of his career.
1: I think that's fair um so but what isn't fair is the game of recruiting and really is lincoln riley done with the eyeball emojis now that he got belus jones to buy jansen dunn um apparently he did he did commit to lincoln riley and then not that long later um you know he ends up becoming a book guy and is this is this just because the oil industry is just down in oklahoma right now <laughs>
0: That, that that's a very valid thing to bring up right now with this, but um no, I I don't think that's necessarily it. I mean, it sounded like he really was an Ohio State lean all along, and there was confusion on whether or not he was uh, a committable offer at this point. Then obviously, you know, Ohio State comes in and says, "Hey, wait a minute." Whether or not they provided some incentives there, whatever. It's, you know, I I think it's not simply a matter of whether OU could pay or not. I think it was – there were some other factors there. But, obviously, it seemed like Ohio State was the favorite all along. But, oh, well.
2: Oh, as you guys saw, I mean, I put the eyeballs on – I think I am the first one to go out and do it and go ahead and put the eyeball emojis on the hot seat. I think that's time (laughs) for them to start producing more. I think it's time before they get just fired completely. So no, you know, in reality though, in non-joking, non-satire, I I think that you know this whole situation. I I never understood the take anyways because I don't get taking three safeties that are over six two, six three. You know, I don't. I think Oklahoma and Alex Grinch always is going to need another safety that's kind of like Patrick Fields. I, I think the same role that Will Johnson played in 2017, the one that Patrick Fields plays now, a guy that you can count on is going to be in position no matter what. So I didn't understand it up front and necessarily from Oklahoma side of things. And then you kind of get into the nonsense of what the Jansen done situation was. I mean, I, I could say this with confidence. I, I've talked to enough people not after the done deal, but just in general over the last month um, inside OU's walls that I think that there is a common idea and there's a common theme um, around what Ohio State's been able to do on the recruiting trail right now. And I'll leave it at that.
1: Yeah, getting guys like Travian Henderson that don't even take visits to the campus. It's incredible what Ryan Day's staff is doing up there and a lot of people, to be quite frank, kind of what Jack is kind of what Jack was saying, a lot of people didn't even know who Jansen Dunn was in the first place until they saw like big news and being retweeted by Lincoln Riley. Nobody really knew about him, but people understood, oh, Lincoln Riley's flashed some eyes. And it has to be Kendall Daniels for some odd reason because he just tweeted something. And so not not many people were on the Jansen Dunn trail. So to speak, and will people even really care about that sort of thing? And how basically Lincoln Riley kind of got burned on that after tweeting out eyeball emojis. Will people even care about it when, let's say, the Serious Three and Caleb Williams, Mario Williams, and uh, Christian Leary all commit within not that long with each other? will They even really care,
2: yes, everybody will. You think so? Yeah, I mean we're talking about the number one quarterback in the country and the number one wide receiver in the country and another one of his players. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, that's a, that's a program altering commitment. So, I mean, the, the people will care. Um, I think recruiting, I think people still care about recruiting regardless of the fiasco. It was Saturday night. So, you know, I, I, it was almost as if people have been so frustrated with Oklahoma recruiting over the last two months, because Ohio State seems to not be slowing down, and some other schools aren't that they kind of just let this Jansen Dunn deal flow in with all the frustration about not being hot on the recruiting trail,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and I think that's kind of where we're at now, and yeah oh. you know, and it it may be it may be one of those deals where you know Oklahoma fans kind of realize that You weren't, I mean, like like you guys said, like, I don't understand. Like, Jansen Dunn wasn't even on the radar.
1: Yeah. Wasn't on the radar.
0: You didn't even know you wanted him until, you know, 30 minutes beforehand.
1: (laughs) Until you lost him. (laughs)
0: Until he committed silently
2: and then flipped silently and then committed publicly. All in a span of 72 hours.
1: Um, That's unbelievable. And so, what is the current state of OU recruiting right now? Like, because it seems slow. But it feels like, and and it seems slow because it is, because nobody's really committed. And it just seems like Oklahoma and Lincoln Riley, they're waiting on one to two big dominoes to fall. And then for the rest of everything, really just to start falling in place with that. And it's just that the virus that's keeping everybody indoors, not allowing everybody to go on Visits and not allowing OU to host their champion barbecue has really muddied that up for the Sooners and staff. So, what is 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 the OU just in a rut, or is it actually just we're waiting on dominoes to fall to fill in that class? I mean, like you have so many good players that are OU leans in the series three, and Bryce Foster and all these big time guys. And so, is it just a matter of time? Is what I'm asking.
0: Hashtag. I'd say to a degree. Yeah. yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, there's, you keep seeing tweets about the serious three in the hashtag. You have to under, you have to know that, that is, there's substance to that, even though, you know, sometimes you see these eyeballs don't uh, always come to fruition, as you saw with Chance and Dunn. But this is a little different, obviously. This serious three, it's, uh, well, for lack of a better term, it's serious. And that's three different recruits and guys that are, uh, they're big time. And they're guys who are, if not committed, are very, 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 very high on the Sooners. So they are guys who you should essentially in your head take as givens on the recruiting trail. And they're all guys who are going to move the needle, guys who are going to grab headlines, guys who could potentially be All-Americans during their time at Oklahoma could be uh, three or four years from now hearing their name called in the draft, guys who are going to shoot you up in the recruiting rankings. You know, I, I, I would, yeah, definitely say just wait on it.
1: Well, all right, well, before we go to a break, we have Twitter questions following and just some other really interesting things for you guys. So thanks for listening and we'll check you guys right after the break.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by cars.com.
1: All right, guys, so let's go to some Twitter questions that people tweeted at us and just sent in. That's such a random number, but I'm sure they meant 4.5. Who knows? OU Champs says, over, under, four and a half Sooners drafted this, I guess, weekend.
0: I'd say over just because I think Parnell will probably go in the sixth or seventh round. Even though he had, you know, his pro day wasn't very impressive numberless wise I think he put so much on film as a senior that I think someone will probably take a gamble on him in the late round so he would be the fifth guy so I'd say over
2: over and easily I expect Parnell to go in round four late round four, four. Shit. okay I I've heard I heard a lot of really good buzz about him at the uh, pro day, and I heard a lot of more buzz, really good buzz about him when he was down in Florida. At the uh, golly, I, I don't remember what the oh, American Bowl or what senior bowl deal he did down in Florida, but uh, you know, I think that this is a guy that scouts are, are, are a lot higher on than the public is just in terms of because they know who he went up against and how difficult it was this year to slow, to slow those guys down and not even just Rager, you know, you're looking at it across the board, but no, I, I, you know, I think that Parnell, he, yeah, I, I think he's going to go draft in the fourth round. There's been a lot of buzz and I've talked to a couple people or a person over the last week that thinks that it's not going to be long on, on Saturday until before we hear Parnell Molly's name called,
1: Yeah, I I agree. I think there's at least five Sooners drafted. And the fact that some people might be even looking at Lee Morris is intriguing to me. Uh, But yeah, at least five for me. And so the next question is from Sko. How do we think, because Baker's Heisman statue is supposed to be unveiled at spring game, and now we're not getting that chance of course, there is no spring game. So how do we think it's going to be revealed now? Uh, is it going to be revealed at a homecoming event? Do you think it's going to be revealed the day before the first next first game? What do you guys think?
0: I would guess the first game. I mean, whether that's in late September, October, or if it's in January, or if it's in the uh, fall of 2021, it'll probably be the first game, I would imagine.
2: Oh, yeah, I, I don't know if it would be the first game um, necessarily, maybe a homecoming because he's going to be in the thick of, you know, they're going to want Baker there. So whatever the Cleveland Browns bye week is going to be, you know, thinking this That's is obviously under the premise that, that we're going to have football in some regard this fall at some point. Uh, if it's in the spring, obviously things are different and he could be there at any any time. but. You know, I I think that they're it's going to be for a game day, and I full I don't expect them to do it inside the stadium though.
1: Okay, that's I think that's fair. Like you you set up camp like an hour, or two or three hours before a f- football game or whatever, and really unveil that thing. You like unlike like the spring game where they're supposed to do inside the stadium. Uh, the next question comes from Girth Brooks, which is an all time name. My favorite says, Twitter
0: handle of anyone who yeah, Twitter Girth Brooks.
1: Period. Better football coach, Lincoln Riley or coach Eric Taylor? What do you guys think about that one? Lincoln Riley. Just
0: because I, I hate the I show. Do. I hate the what show is Bloodline this? so much that that actor's in it. <laughs> and what, so who, I, who is Eric Taylor?
2: You don't know Bright Eric Taylor? Taylor?
1: He's, the, he's the kingmaker.
2: In what, the show or the movie? The, the show. show. See, movie's better.
1: Yeah, some people might disagree with that. I don't
0: like the movie that much either, just because of the way they portrayed Dallas Carter. Very
1: yeah, kind of yeah. The movie I mean, is of, full of falsehoods.
0: Racist. Yeah. Oh, right? absolutely. Yeah. Very problematic. The hashtag problematic.
1: <laughs> it's like it's full of falsehoods. Like Dallas Carter is actually in like a, a middle class like city, uh, full of very wealthy and like disrespected people and. The Permian Panthers didn't even make it to the championship game. They got dealt with like in the, not even in the semifinals, of that state title game, but Dallas Carter actually made it. So a bunch of,
0: that a bunch of should, falsehoods I, in there I, to make I, it an actual movie. I don't, I don't say that I don't like that movie, but it, it's also just ripe with cliches that are, that get a little annoying. I mean, about That's fair. Texas high school football being life and stuff like that. Like, yeah, you get it, but you don't have to give it hit us with the overkill there. I mean, it's, it's uh Sometimes the, uh, I mean, obviously high school football, huge thing in Texas, but sometimes the uh, sometimes it's a little overstated and sometimes it goes a little too far, but whatever.
1: Okay. Last question is from Daryl from the just okay guys that run that podcast, which is pretty good. He says, has the slow start for OUN recruiting and we talked about this, has a slow start for OU recruiting revealed that OU's brand is actually not as strong as we think it is and that visits on campus uh, for experience is actually where OU shines in that recruiting? What do you guys think about that one?
2: You know, I, I well, I mean, how do you say this without saying this? Oklahoma's, there is guys that are committed to Oklahoma.
1: Exactly, hurt,
2: You know, the, that that Oklahoma has been recruiting just fine. They have four commitments, three commitments for the 2021 class, but they're doing just fine. I'll just, we'll leave. I think we should leave it at that.
1: Again, I think that Oklahoma with this whole serious three and dual sport athlete with skip getting in on it. It's just like they're, they have some of the worst kept recruiting secrets right now, as far as like <laughs> high profile guys too. Unless apparently your name is Jansen Den, who just like is a blip on the radar and then he's gone. It's pretty odd, but yeah, they've they have high profile guys that are pretty pretty uh just really bad secrets. But yeah, I agree with you guys. But talking about tomorrow in the next couple of days, and we talked about this before the podcast. What do people and these analysts in the NFL and You know, PFF, Pro Football Focus, and other whoever else is looking at the draft. What do people see in Jalen Hurts that many of us that watch Oklahoma football, you know, every down, every play, and try to analyze it? What are those people seeing, or maybe not seeing, that we do that they're wanting Jalen Hurts maybe to go in late first round, second round for the NFL draft tomorrow?
0: To me, it well, seems like people are uh, yeah. Go for it, Keegan.
2: No, I was going to say. Well, since I've been bashing him for the last seventy two hours, I should go first <laughs> here. Um, no, I yeah. See the I think the thing that uh, people struggle with with Jalen is separating the story and the fan side of rooting for the guy. I mean, you you. It, I like Jalen Hurts a lot. I do. I, I think he means well. I think the.
1: Did you enjoy his press conferences?
2: No, I did not. That that doesn't. Those are. I also. <laughs> I also don't enjoy interviewing. You know, Bill Bidens half the time. I mean, it's for the. That's fair. It's for it's for the same for the same reasons. Now, do I at the very end, whenever I'm sitting there talking football with Bill Bidens it's all it's it's amazing. It's one of the coolest things ever. But you know, the thing with Jalen and I. I think, like I said, I think people have a hard time separating the story and wanting to see the guy have success and then understanding that in order to have that success, Jalen as an NFL quarterback is going to have to be able to check off these boxes. He's going to have to be able to get his team in the right pass protection. He's going to have to get his receivers in the right routes. Then pre-snap, he's going to have to understand, uh, he's going to have to anticipate what coverage is coming. And then after that, he's going to have to make a read off one player uh, off a DB or a linebacker. And then he's going to have to make a quick decision and get a throw out on time. I don't foresee Jalen hurts doing that. You don't have to do that at a high level at the college level. Cause these coaches are putting you in such a, such a good role that it's not that hard to execute those things at this level. You go to the NFL and you are relied upon on everything that I just listed. And the things that Jalen Hurts did not do well last year was recovery. He didn't anticipate well. He was late on throws. He missed bad on throws. Uh, and he made some very questionable decisions. Uh, those five things don't point and add up to a guy having success early on in his NFL career at the quarterback position, especially if he's a starter. Do I think Jalen Hurts in five years could get uh, acclimated to a system, the continuity, that Lincoln Riley mentioned today and he can go and help lead a team to maybe a wild card spot at some point. I I think he can, I I think he has that capability. I don't see it right now. He's going to have to get a hell of a lot better. I think he's going to have to get a hell of a lot better uh, mentally uh, in terms of football. And, you know, that's not, and I think for everybody, I think also another part of this, and it's the political arena that we're in. I don't, I think, I don't think people want to be the guy that's talking down on Jalen Hurts right now. And Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't think because of what happened with Lamar Jackson and Patrick Mahomes, I don't, I don't think people want to be down on him for that reason. But the problem that we're having, it's, it's not these NFL mock draft guys that are doing this. It's the people that they're talking to. It's the NFL scouts. It's the NFL executives that are talking to these reporters that it the, so these reporters are then moving Jalen Hurts up their board. So it's that's where I'm having the biggest struggle with this. It's not that I'm you know disagreeing with what I'm seeing with an a respected NFL draft analyst, it's that I'm disagreeing with what I'm seeing against guys that are getting paid to do this for a living. That's my biggest problem right now.
1: I <laughs> mean, you look at like a guy like Landry Jones who had made his career at Oklahoma just slinging the ball everywhere and being really successful at that in a wide open offense. And you look at how he's transitioned to the NFL and not, not so much transition to the NFL. And you look at him just transitioning or not so much transitioning to the XFL and having a lot of problems. And you're going to tell me that Jalen hurts, who is not a career. He's not a passer. He does not. He there's a difference between passing the ball and throwing the ball. He de- he's not a passer, he's a thrower, but he has excellent athleticism and instincts. And but at the same time, like people want to say how clutch he is, but man, in the second half of the season, he really put the Sooners in some really big binds where they depended on the defense a lot more when defenses started taking certain things away from him, especially the sidelines. And you just look at other quarterbacks in the NFL or that from college to NFL and you you maybe look at Dak Prescott and you hope he can become something like that where he's not really dependent to make actual good throws early on in his career and he can hopefully develop, I guess. But it's just interesting to me that we talked before the podcast that people at Oklahoma are raising their eyes. And that should be a red flag because like, if Oklahomans are raising their eyes every time we say, oh, Jalen Hurts might go second round or late first round, early third round, in Oklahomans are raising their eyes besides the Oklahoma staff because they can't do anything, they can't do that. Uh it it should be alarming. But of course, you know, here we are. Jack, what were you gonna say?
0: I was gonna say, I mean, you saw how much Lincoln Riley had to change his offense just to cater to Jalen Hurts because of his deficiencies as a passer. And people when you men- when you mention this, they say, Oh, well, you saw what Baltimore did with Lamar Jackson. He is not Lamar Jackson. He is not that – like, he's a very good athlete,
2: but he he's is actually Deshaun the... Watson, Jack. That's what I
1: heard. <laughs> Are you we're just going to compare but, I mean, him to every black quarterback he's... in the NFL? Yeah, <laughs> is is it is. I was waiting for you to
0: on that.
1: Uh, he's
0: not the athlete that Lamar Jackson is. Lamar Jackson can cover up for a lot of the bo- – he's someone who is fast and athletic enough that he's able to good. keep up with a lot of the NFL speed. He can pick up a lot of chunks of yardage with his legs. Jalen Hurts, he's not going to be able to do that much with his legs at the next level. He ran, what was it, a four six at the NFL Combine. He's someone who can pick up some yardage. He can do some short yardage stuff. But let's not compare him to Lamar Jackson. That is a false equivalency. I think Dak Prescott is probably the better comparison. And, and even many... then, that's stretching it. The, that it Dak is Prescott can throw the, and also, the reason that Dak Prescott yeah. is as efficient as he is is because a that offensive line in Dallas is beastly, and b he has Ezekiel Elliott. I mean, yeah, and, how and many like... how many different settings are there? Where that's the case, I mean, there there are none. I mean, and Dak showed something the ability like that to throw the ball in Mississippi State. Fit in completely. I mean, it's it's. I I think the comparison to Taysom Hill is a lot more apt. But whatever. Dak that's Prescott fair.
2: led Mississippi State. Mississippi State, yeah, to a number which one, which plays in ranking, the SEC West, <laughs> to a number one ranking at one point in his career. Jalen Hurts, I don't feel like ever took a team to their lofted ranking. I think it had a lot to do with him, and I think it had a hell of a lot more to do with the players that were around him. And do I think Jalen Hurts is a really good football player? I absolutely do. Do I I like Jalen Hurts? I absolutely do. do. Do I want to see him succeed? I absolutely do. I just, it's come to a point now to where there's really no middle ground with Jalen. It's either you think he's going to do it or he doesn't. And if you're on one side, you're either, one, racist, or two. Or you hate him. Or t- <laughs> yeah. Or two, you don't, think he's gonna, you don't think he's a very good quarterback. And then on the other side, you think that he all of his success in college is because of what Jalen Hurts was able to do. So it's, it's a hard balancing act for a lot of people because it's pulling a lot of emotional strings for Oklahoma, Oklahoma media and fans of Oklahoma football. They don't have that emotional string to Jalen. I think that's why you're seeing a lot of Oklahoma people be so upfront and honest about how they feel about him. You know, did I guarantee you if you put a true serum on every Oklahoma football fan, they would have told you if the, if a Cleveland person would have come and say, "Can Baker Mayfield have a really bad sophomore season?" We all would have been like, "Yeah, he it can happen." We saw it in 2016 before the Ohio State game. And but at the same time, people don't want to mention that because it's Baker Mayfield. With Jalen, it's a lot different because it's he's really not an You know he he's really didn't pull those emotional strings like what a lot of these other quarterbacks have done. Even shit, Trevor Knight.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it, it, I always thought it was kind of weird <clears throat> because you mentioned that when he, he played in the Senior Bowl and he, and he he was an Alabama guy, and then he's gonna have like a dual helmet with an OU on one side and Alabama Crimson Tide stuff on the other, and it's like why why are we do why are we doing this? He's he like you said he's not Oklahoma's. He is essentially like kind of a mercenary, and but I think like you said it's the spectrum now especially in Oklahoma media is for this and on judging Jalen hurts is one way or the other, when in reality, just like most things, the truth is somewhere in the middle. And so let's transition to another quarterback. And I mean, a guy that just completely took it to Oklahoma in down in New Orleans in Joe Burrow, which is really interesting his career as a college player is interesting to me because he's going to go first overall he's going to go to the Bengals, and on a scale of one to ten ten being most likely that it happens what do you think that his bust potential is in the nfl
0: it's hard to say because he has everything both mentally and physically to be a slam dunk as a quarterback of the next level keegan you saw him in new orleans he is or in Atlanta, I mean, sorry. I, yeah, I, I don't know the- right, where sorry. it was played at That's either. right,
1: Chick-fil-A, my bad. <laughs> I mean,
0: it was, it, was, it was basically the same crowd uh, discrepancy, regardless of where it was. But he's, he won people over later in the year. He was not a system quarterback. He's no. a playmaker and a very heady quarterback and a guy who can make all the throws. I mean, he, he's he a stud. The one thing that works against him is the fact that he's going to be playing in Cincinnati. That's the issue. That is where quarterbacks' dreams go to die. So, but that's his head really coach isn't that Marvin
2: Jones it. anymore. It's a guy yeah, that hit him. So there's that. Before before you finish and give your bust rating, I did want to throw that in there.
0: I would. I mean, I, I would say it's it, it's still a very low bust rating. I'd, I'd say probably like a two or a three out of ten. <laughs> Yeah, I'd, okay. I'd agree.
2: I'd agree with you there. I think the thing, the things that I listed off that Joe Burrow is going to have to do at the NFL level, um, he did it in college a lot more uh, at LSU than what Jalen Hurts did at Oklahoma last season for Lincoln. Is the getting guys in the right pass protections, making sure the receivers, uh, knowing who your hot routes are, knowing who where the who's picking up blitz protections all those things, Joe Burrow checks off all those boxes. His anticipation's great. His timing's great. His arm talent's great. He's athletic. He, he's a leader. He's a guy people want to rally around all the, there is very few negatives when you're looking at the resume of what Joe Burrow could become in the NFL. He checks off every single box. So for me, and I've, been very steadfast on this. And I, I think I said this and it may have driven come crazy a little bit at times last fall, but I, I truly think, and it really sunk it for me. And I think this was one of those things you had to see him play in person, but I, I think Joe Burrow may have put together. I I think it's as good as what Sam did. I think it's as good as what Baker did. I think it's as good as what Kyler did. It may have been better than all of them. And with Burrow, the him going to a guy and this is, this is where that bus potential comes in. Joe Burrow is not a guy that can go play in San Francisco. Joe Burrow is not a guy that can go play in a pro style system like Buffalo. He's not a guy that can go to Carolina with like what they did with Cam Newton. He's going to have to go to a system like maybe a Zach Taylor with the Cincinnati Bengals. That's going to fit him. And it's going to, it's going to allow him to continue to grow um in that role kind of as an air raidish quarterback and i i think he's gonna have a lot of success at the next level i think the intangibles that he brings to the table separate him from everybody else in this class i don't so I, i'd have his bus potential very low.
1: all right well i guess i'll be the one that says his bus potential i mean here's the deal it's just like he had the end of not the 2019-20 season, but the end of the 2018-19 season. He really started to come on, uh, when Ordron really gave him the reins to that program as the quarterback. And he just got just like it looked, he didn't just get better game by game. It was like almost seemingly exponentially got better from that last, from his junior season to his senior season to the point where, I mean, like, what was. His completion percentage was like 73, 74 percent. And he he's an he is an underrated athlete and a high quality decision maker. And I think that's like it's it I mean he was Heisman worthy. And but I, I just I look at his game and I'm I'm just not too sure. because um, you look at Joe Brady and what he was able to do with him. And I'm not saying he's a system quarterback by any means, because you look at some of the things he did and it's like, that's not a system. That's just him making a fantastic decision um, on, on like really edge making plays and against good defenses. So, you know, I'm a little high on the bus potential. I'll say, you know, it's about a four or five, but I don't think nearly it's like seven or eight. And let's just say, you know, like I say, Zach Taylor, not to mention, you know, Norman own Norman high tiger, you know, the guys in Oklahoma, he's an Okie. And then, you know, that he, he looks like he's going to put the Bengals in for success and hopefully they'll keep Joe Mixon Cause that would make his life, Joe Burrow so much more easier with. Yeah. My concern is
0: it, it's less with Zach Taylor and more with the Browns organization and the Brown or not the Browns organization, the Bengals organization and the Brown family and the way they run that organization. You could say that for both the Browns and the Bengals, I think. of course. (laughs) Of course. But, yeah, like, I I don't trust them to put the people around him that will help him succeed. Having Joe Mixon will be nice, obviously. But uh, it's – Pay the man. I I don't picture them doing enough to where he will have enough around him to uh, necessarily be an elite quarterback. But, I mean, I think he can – you can expect him to at least be as good or better than Andy Dalton obviously because he's much more talented than yeah. he is but i just don't know that he's uh, going to have enough around him to truly shine but we'll see i still i don't think he's going to be a bust but i think his ceiling might be a little be lower solid because of his uh setting so i don't i didn't
2: even you, think about the benefit that Joe Mixon's going to get out of Joe Burrow especially of course, with how yeah. much if they, pay, they, if they pay the man yeah especially if Joe Burrow with the way he dumped Dump balls off to Clyde Edwards-Hilaire all of 2019. Uh, throwing to Joe Mixon's a little bit different than Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, Joe, if you're listening.
1: so It's, uh, yeah, having Joe there, but it all comes back to the offensive line. And, I mean, Baker Mayfield not that far away, and Cleveland knows that uh, pretty well. It doesn't really matter the weapons you have if you are running for your life. And, you know, just looking at OU in general, talking about defense, we, we when we started this podcast off by talking about the 2000 season and talking about the best defensive players since 2000, and a lot of these guys, I mean, y'all, a lot of these guys don't exist outside of 2004. And that's kind of like alarming. So do you guys ever think, and Keegan, I'll go to you first, do you think, oh, you can get back or get to this defensive level of Clemson, Alabama, Ohio State, and other elites? Or do you think that, you know, popping out at defensive s p plus around 20 is the best they're going to get until they switch conferences
2: oh man see you if you would have gave s p 30 i would have gone to the other side but at s p 20 so this is sort of a story i'm i'm working on here and for the off season about how lSU laid the blueprint out and i i see its next uh bullet point to talk about but LSU laid a blueprint out for Oklahoma for if you if to get to that level to not just to get to that level but to win a national championship with a defense that's not elite. LSU's defense last year was 19th in S&P+. Plus, and they did not have a as historic S&P+ Plus offensive rating as what Oklahoma had in 2017 and 2018. So the can OU, the question of, oh, can OU get to the defensive level of Clemson, Alabama, and, the, and Ohio State? I don't think that's ever going to happen, uh, especially in the time being. Uh, in the, I shouldn't say ever. Um, I'll only make those kind of comments to Brady Trantham, uh, who will listen to this podcast, I'm <laughs> assuming. But Do uh, you think it's a conference thing? I, I I think it's a region thing, and I think it's Okay. It's just I, I don't I I said this before and I and I think this I, I think a lot of people will when they hear this that it'll make them think a little bit but if Oklahoma was located in Dallas this would be a sure shot yes Oklahoma can't get to that level but Oklahoma's not located in Dallas Oklahoma's located in Oklahoma and the state of Oklahoma is not up until these next few recruiting classes haven't produced that defensive talent that's really needed as an in state uh to produce I, I guess to produce in-state guys the state of oklahoma just doesn't do it you know you look at these other programs clemson's an hour from atlanta ohio state mm-hmm. is in their own category of their own uh Gosh, the, with the way the they're ohio putting their, yeah and they're putting in a, the way they're putting guys in the nfl on the defensive side of the ball alabama the state of alabama and mississippi uh produces a lot of the top defensive tackles in the country as well as florida and georgia so I think it's more of a regional thing, I, and I, I've really, 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 you know, vouched for this. I, I, I think Oklahoma doesn't need to get to that defensive level, and we'll go. That'll kind of lead me into where I'm going to go with the uh, next question. But yeah, I don't, I don't foresee them anytime soon getting up to that level.
1: Jack, what do you think? Do you think it's possible that OU does get there? Let's say in the next ten years.
0: Well, it's sort of like Keegan was saying. You're you're not you don't have the same advantages as Clemson, Alabama, or Ohio State, but you can get to where LSU was a year ago. I think you can get in the top twenty-five, maybe SP plus range. And I think you're obvious. You're seeing the schemes change in the Big Twelve a little bit too. It's not as pass happy yeah. as it used to be. Last no. year, I mean, you saw Baylor. They weren't slinging it all over the place. I mean, it was more of a ground and pound approach. And you're seeing that in a lot of schools, Iowa state sort of adopting that Kansas state, they were never, you know, a high flying offense and they're staying the way that they are essentially under climate. It's basically just a new face, but the same program. But, uh, and then Texas, I mean, you're, you're probably going to see them pass a little more than they have in years past, but still they're not going to be like a, they're not going to throw it 65% of the time or anything like that. They'd be my, maybe a little closer to what Oklahoma's doing, but, uh, you know, I, I you don't necessarily have to be Clemson, Alabama or Ohio State because I mean I don't think that's attainable just because like Keegan pretty much covered everything. I mean, Oklahoma is not it's not Louisiana. Louisiana per capita produces recruits as well as any other state. Yes. And I mean, you know, people from south of the border will say, Oh, well, you have to use uh, Texas recruits to uh Get to the, oh, the elite gosh. level. Well, that's yeah, been the most annoying do. Twitter I mean, thing for the
1: last two weeks.
0: Of course, yeah. I mean, of course Oklahoma does. But I mean, what does that say about Texas and Texas A and M that Oklahoma comes in and takes all of their talent and is considerably better, considerably better than Texas and Texas A and M year in and year out? I mean, it's it's the biggest cell phone in all of Twitter discourse is Texas and Texas A and M fans trying to own Oklahomans by saying, oh, well, none of your talent's homegrown. Well, we're taking all of your talent. How, what, how do you feel about that? You know, it's whatever. Yeah, Save uh, for no, that
1: 2,000 team.
0: Of course, yeah. I mean, can, o- can Oklahoma bring in a class that's maybe, you know, top 15 defensive talent-wise? Sure, probably. But they're not going to be up in the top three ever of any course. given year, probably. But it's certainly getting a lot better on that front just because Alex Grinch is Stressing speed and athleticism, and he's getting some guys that you know Mike Stoops and guys like that weren't getting a few years ago. So,
1: I mean, like I just I just think about Alex Grinch and what he was able to do with the talent that was recruited for him, and I think about what he could have done in 2015 and 16 and 17, and Addison Gums if he could have, you know convinced him to stay in Oklahoma and what kind of monster Addison Gums would have been as a rush linebacker and just a lot of things like if that's what you're doing in your first year without a completely full like offseason and that's 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 the kind of defense you can play and with just guys across the board that you are blatantly pissed about having no depth of safety and saying you only have two good safeties he was very vocal about that in just really, just seeing the quality of play. I mean, I think what you guys said, yeah. It those other programs, Clemson, Alabama, LSU, uh, Ohio State, etc. They all have their geographical advantages, and I think that's an interesting thing when we talk about Oklahoma really going to the D.C. area lately, which I think is pretty intriguing. Um, you know, it just it's just amazing to me to see what Oklahoma can do, um, and then. As far as what Jack said, yeah, Oklahoma goes into Texas and plucks players, and no quote other than what Kenneth Murray said. To I don't even know who that guy was asking questions at Big Twelve Media Day. He was right asking next why to, he, chose. Uh, he was
0: the biggest yeah. fucking goober I've ever seen in person.
1: <laughs> he's he's just like, why you choose Oklahoma? I wanted to win. Well, that's why you cross the river. Fishing yeah.
0: so hard <laughs> for a quote, it, it was it was absurd, and Kenneth Murray made him look stupid. I mean, it it was was fantastic. That's all you
1: need to show. That's all you need to show. It's like, well, he wants to win. But going on to the very next thing, because like Keegan said, uh, you know, LSU kind of – I was thinking the same thing after LSU was just beating the shit out of OU. Um, I was thinking, wow, their defense isn't even that great, and it's just formidable. And they're playing disciplined defense. And if it's just the point of playing – High octane offense and disciplined defense just tackling relatively well, and you have a shot to win the national title every year. That's very doable for Oklahoma, as long as Lincoln Riley and Alex Grinch are essentially co head coaches. One guy runs the head coach of the offense, and one guy's the head coach of the defense. And so, Keegan, how close is OE to winning a national title? And give, give me a year range, and I'll come to Jack after that. You know,
2: I, I think for the first time, in a decade, over a decade, it'd been eleven years since two thousand nine. Oklahoma's national championship window is open. I, I think we can offic- I think I can officially say that from all the metrics that I look at, from the blue chip stuff to the, the talent with the NFL draft picks and just the program uh, strength stuff that I look at that I have in my Excel sheets. Uh, this is the first time it really matches up. It gives Oklahoma – Oklahoma's going to be able to put up a number one offense and they're going to be able to put up a defense that is going to give them a chance to be in the top 30 of the S&P Plus. Or SP Plus, I think is what it is now. So how close? Well, your national championship window is officially open in 2020 in my eyes. And I think – and Kamyar, this isn't – I don't know if yielding is the right word here, but I think <laughs> I finally have gotten to that point where – you know, it has to be a national championship or bust. There's two. There's no more excuses. Now, if you if you're if you want to say, well, Alex Grinch still doesn't have his players in, yeah, that's that's cool and fair and everything, whatever. But Oklahoma is about to have the number one offense in the country again. So the step back that they took last year a little bit offensively, it, it obviously it showed on the field that with the close games, that if they just weren't able to score a will, that the game was going to be close. And so Oklahoma's going to have a chance in the coming years to match a number one offense with Spencer Rattler with a top 30 defense. And we'll see where they come from there. I think we're going to figure out what, where that numbers, those numbers need to be at, but, and then you kind of take away those numbers too. I think this is a defense. I think, and I think an offense too, I think it's as complete of a team Oklahoma's had since when, what, 20, 2015.
1: 2013 I would say maybe 2015 if the offensive line wasn't so bad to start the year
2: right and so this is a team that's going to be as good as it's come probably as high as expectations since 2009 and because in 2017 obviously you had Baker and Oklahoma was supposed to make a playoff but even then you still had you know fans expecting you know Oklahoma to lose on the road in Columbus and then to lose a game uh somewhere in between I don't I don't, mm-hmm. there's not a game on the schedule for Oklahoma in 2020 and hell, even you get Georgia at home <laughs> in 2021. I don't, you know, Oklahoma, they should win every game from here on out. And if that's an expectation, if people are hearing me saying this, well, that's been Oklahoma football for a long time. Well, that hasn't been Oklahoma football in my lifetime. And yep. then it really hasn't been since 2008 uh, or 2009. So this is the national championship window is open and I think Oklahoma is as close as they In terms of on paper and in the math, this is as as close as it gets for them putting a national championship caliber team on the football field.
1: At the end of Stoops' tenure, when he would say, oh, that's the expectation at Oklahoma uh, to play in big bowl games and to play in, you know, national stages, you know, before he hired Lincoln Riley, it almost felt like empty words in that he was just fulfilling this idea that Oklahoma is – like you would say, better than most programs. But now that Lincoln Riley is there and building something greater uh, than it's been in a long time, you really feel like, hey, they're serious. These are not just empty words. It is championship or bust. And they really feel those reverberations inside the program to make it feel like hey you know what it really is national title season year in and year out and if you don't make it there and if you don't get the chance to it is a busted season so i i i feel like that's really valid and sorry for interrupting you jack go ahead <laughs>
0: um i'm sorry i lost my train of thought um i was gonna say i was gonna agree with keegan on that the uh the window is officially open for you to possibly win a national championship and i was thinking and i've said this on previous podcasts that as far as the ideal conditions are concerned, you might not find a better time for that than 2021 for a few reasons. One, I mean, I, Rattler, as far as his quarterback pedigree is concerned, he's already good enough to win a national championship. But in 2021, he's he hasn't even played stint. a game yet. Exactly, exactly. He he's he's still incredible, though. I mean, you, no, you no, I agree you, with you. We've both talked about that. I mean, he could have easily started for Oklahoma this year, even without being there in the spring. I mean, he's oh, I someone who...
2: A, I went on a podcast last night with the uh, that OU Football Fans podcast, and I, I told them, and I if the thought of Spencer Rattler not replacing Jalen Hurst at some point in the 2019 season didn't cross your mind, you're lying.
0: Of course, yeah, of course. And, I mean, but anyway, 2021, he's going to be even more seasoned. And a seasoned Spencer Rattler who isn't, you know, maybe forcing throws that he shouldn't, is going to be very, 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 very dangerous. Obviously, probably he'll be the best quarterback in the country. And another thing, in 2021, Trevor Lawrence won't be here at at Clemson anymore. They'll be breaking in a new quarterback at that point. It'll be the DJ kid, DJ Uga. Uh, yeah, Yuga yeah he, he's fantastic, whatever. but he'll be in his first year, so maybe. And also, Oklahoma's defensive talent across the board will be better in 2021 than it probably has been in over a decade, so I think 2021 with Rattler as a redshirt sophomore, with Jaden Hazelwood still there, with Theo Weiss still there, with Trajan Bridges still there, with Austin Stogner still there, with still a very good offensive line still there, even though I think after this year they're going to probably, you're going to lose Creed Humphrey and you're going to lose Hayes, but it's still going to be a very good offensive line that will lead in both fields in 2021. I feel like that is going to be as good an opportunity as any in 2021 for Oklahoma to win the national championship in the near future
1: yeah I I, I agree with that I, I think OU's championship window and like like Keegan said I think it's I think it's wide open and and it, it opened for a second with Baker Mayfield and slammed shut uh, and then I think it's going to be open for the formidable future as long as you have Lincoln Riley running your offense and Alex French running that defense. It, it looks very promising. But Keegan, always good to have you on the podcast. I mean, I was talking about it with Steven last week, always, you know, being the OGs of way back five years ago, always, just always good to talk and tell everybody, you know, where they can find your stuff and where they can find everything for from you
2: yeah you follow me on twitter at keegan renault k-e-g-a-n-r-e-n-e-a-u after these next couple days i won't have to fight off any more jalen hurts people so uh twitter will definitely calm down a little bit there and i'll get back to more of the uh regularly scheduled programming of tweeting at the governor about the weather or the president about sports so but no, I'm kidding. I don't tweet at the president. Don't. No, I, there's no political talk on my on my timeline. But then you can go go to our website. It's uh, SoonersWire.com pow- and it's powered by USA Today. And uh, you know, it's, um, we're coming up a couple months on being a year in the company. So uh, things still going good. And uh, yeah, we sh- we're gonna have all sorts of NFL draft content over the next couple of days. So uh, you can guys could come check us out over at SoonersWire
1: and really cool thing that you dropped about you're talking about dropping an article about lsu really paving the way for the sooners right
2: mm-hmm. yeah yeah that'll be probably be over the next couple months i'm gonna need to do this gonna be a film study deal
1: mm. so anyways thank you guys for listening and tuning in to us at crimson and cream machine uh check us out crimson and cream crimson, crimson and cream Machine.com. brought to you guys by sb nation you can follow jack shields at cc machine or j larry shields i'm at km robbie and ccm Again, guys, we're on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Google Play Podcasts. Give us a five-star rating. Really appreciate it. And thanks for listening. And we'll check you guys later.